Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am so, so excited today to welcome back to the show the one, the only. Am, am I, am I, am I, uh, am I building this up, Abby? <laughs> You're building it up a lot, Nick. I don't know about this the pressure. The one, I don't know if can handle the it. only, <laughs> Abby Tracy. Abby, welcome back to the show, of course. Thank you. I'm very, very excited to talk about the debates. Moscow Mitch, you being at the Mueller hearing, my computer making a dinging noise. Um, it's it's all happening this morning. Uh, <laughs> so All excellent things. Um, all right. So let's get started with the thing that I have always wondered about uh, when I've, you know, laying in bed at night thinking about uh, Moscow Mitch's three chins and how he has become the uh, I guess he's like the pariah of the Democratic Party and the savior of the Republican mm-hmm. Party, but how he just became so friggin' evil. Um, I, let's 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 actually start with actually how he got his little new title, Moscow Mitch, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah, definitely. Well, first of all, though, you said three chins, and I would argue that I don't know if he has a chin, Oh, but that's so a conversation I'm, for a different time. I'm looking mm-hmm. at it completely incorrectly, like there are three yeah. there, but there really may not be one. And and it's just confusing. I learned something today. <laughs> but we can do an entire podcast on that separately, <laughs> just a discussion about, you know, his face structure, you know, what's going on with his mandible, all that. We'll see. Totally down. You totally know. down. We'll do that next week. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so so Moscow Mitch is uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader's latest nickname. He's had a few other in the past. Obviously, there was you know the Cocaine Mitch. So where did Cocaine nickname. Mitch come from again? I kind of forget. It was it was a very like unfounded nickname. I believe it was just you know maybe a Democratic opponent or somebody called him Cocaine Mitch, and he liked it, right? Um, yeah, and he embraced it. He totally embraced that nickname, and you know kind of laughed it off, but in a way. Uh, sort of disarmed the nickname by with his embrace of it. I think I read um, I read somewhere that he used to answer his phone around that time as saying cocaine Mitch speaking. Uh Yeah, exactly. He absolutely did. So you had that nickname and then he also has this nickname of, you know, being the grim reaper in the Senate. So, you know, with the current setup right now with a divided government with Democrats in the majority in the House and then Republicans in the majority in the Senate. 
Democrats have gotten to call him, you know, the Grim Reaper, essentially. Like, any legislation that they pass in the House is just dead on arrival in the Senate, and Mitch McConnell just has refused to take up, you know, legislation after legislation. Um, and to that point, one of the reasons, so the reason that he got this, you know, new moniker of Moscow Mitch was because he hasn't, um, you know, brought these election security bills that have been passing the House or have bipartisan support either in the Senate um, or in the House to the floor to take a vote on them. And so people are kind of, you know, as a result, they called him like Moscow Mitch because he's helping the Russians is, you know, sort of the point that they're trying to get at that he's helping the Russians. He was called like a Russian asset in all this, just sort of this lack of his willingness to pick up and bring these votes or these bills to the floor for a vote. People are saying, you know, he's essentially doing Vladimir Putin's bidding. Like that is kind of what the nickname is trying to get at. So he, one of the things that I find really confusing though is that he, he's he's a smart guy i mean let's give it to him like mm-hmm. he he really knows he's oh, knows what he's doing evil and, evil and smart and um he's been doing this you know he was the the majority whip for from 2003 to 2007 he's been the minority leader from uh 2007 to 2015 now he's the majority leader you know since 2015 like he knows this way this works upside down inside out and backwards doesn't Someone like that who used to answer their phone, Cocaine Mitch, not take the bait with Moscow Mitch? Or is or is he like genuinely, for all his evil, he still cares about America and um, doesn't want to be seen as like a Russian asset? Like what what's going on there? So he's definitely, you know, as we talked about, like these other nicknames, he's really accepted and embraced. So obviously, as you mentioned, like the Cocaine Mitch one, laughed it off, started answering his phone like that. The Grim Reaper... Um, he's kind of adopted that as a badge of honor. But the Moscow Mitch nickname has really seemed to get under his skin in a way that other criticism or other critiques of his you know, leadership over in the Senate have not. Um, so earlier this week, he actually gave a speech on the Senate floor, sort of. Uh, it was kind of angry and just, you know, trying to push back on this, you know, allegation that he's doing Russians bidding or that he's, you know, a Russian asset. And it was really the first time that you've kind of seen Mitch McConnell uh, kind of get ruffled by a nickname or criticism because he gets criticized all the time. You know, people, I think when we're looking at the Republican Party, um, Democrats view him as perhaps like the worst person in the party. Obviously, you have Donald Trump, who draws a lot of ire. But in terms of, you know, making drastic impact and changes and, you know, obviously the Merrick Garland stuff, I think people really do view Mitch McConnell as a problem. And even as, you know, this presidential, the Democratic presidential primary has unfolded, you've really seen this kind of come up, this idea that, okay, we could beat Trump, but as long as Mitch McConnell is still around, we're not going to get anything done. So people definitely view him as kind of, you know, the chief uh, evil figure in the party, I think, on the other side of the aisle. So it has been interesting to see, given all the criticism that Mitch McConnell gets on a day-in, day-out basis, it's been interesting to see sort of his pushback or anger at being, you know, labeled Moscow Mitch. It's kind of an unusual thing for him. So when you look at, I remember in the debate uh, a few weeks ago, um, one of the first debates I think it was, that Mitch McConnell's name was probably mentioned more than Donald Trump's name about about mm-hmm. how do you deal with with Mitch McConnell? How do you deal with deal with the majority whip that won't um, that won't bring things to the floor? Is is the only way to deal with that to beat him in his Senate seat in Kentucky, or 
is there a, is there something that anyone can do? Apparently not, right? Yeah, I mean, it, you wouldn't necessarily have to beat him in his Senate seat. You know, if we if Democrats flipped enough seats um, to blue and kind of took over the majority, uh, then Democrats would have the majority over there. But like, the problem is, is you know. Even in that scenario, if Mitch McConnell is the minority leader, uh, he's such an effective member of Congress and sort of legislator, and he knows he's just incredibly um, tactful in his approach to everything. And honestly, you know, his imprint and his impact on the Senate and American politics will be massive, just given you know his skill set and how he is able to essentially run circles around other people in the Senate and kind of take advantage of every opportunity that he can. So I do think you know, and, and I and I say that recognizing that I think he has been incredibly damaging to to American democracy in a lot of ways, but also he's been extremely effective in terms of what he's trying to achieve and what he has achieved. But I think, you know, given his abilities and his skill sets to do that, he would still be absolutely dangerous if he was minority leader in the Senate, even if Democrats won the majority over there. So, you know, ideal world, he loses his seat and Democrats were to win back the majority in the Senate. But, you know, looking forward, despite who, you know, whoever would be in the White House, you'd still have a very similar situation to what we have now if the government stays divided and the Senate stays in Republican hands and the House, you know, stays in Democratic hands. Like, it, it will just be gridlock if the status quo continues. Yeah. As far as uh, McConnell, so in, he's he's got a pretty low rating uh, in his home state. Um, uh, he, you know, he barely, he won the, the last election, but he, it was, you know, he won 56% of the votes. And he, he, there are now a lot of people that are saying they're going to challenge him. Um, you've got this new uh, former fire uh, fighter pilot, um, House candidate, mm-hmm. Amy McGrath, a Democrat who's just announced she's running. A lot of people are donating money. There's other folks that are stepping up. Um, do you think that he can be beat or is he, is is there just too much of an understanding by the Republican Party that this is the person they need to be running the place that they won't let that happen? I mean, I think beating Mitch McConnell will be incredibly, incredibly difficult. And what you would have to see is almost, um, you know, just massive Democratic turnout just, uh, you know, from the presidential election down to like really just boost numbers, especially in a state like Kentucky. Beating him would be an absolute challenge. And I think, yeah, he doesn't have a great approval rating. But when you look at some of these key issues to the Republican Party, whether it's judges um, who are being, you know, federal judges who are getting these lifetime appointments, um, he has been masterful in sort of controlling that and, you know, keeping, continuing to put conservative judges in these lifetime appointments. And I think that really does matter a lot to Republican voters. And they do recognize sort of what he has done for the party and the party's goals. Um, I'm not, you know, I would never want to say that it's impossible to beat him, but I think it'll be an absolute challenge to beat Mitch McConnell in the Senate. But it's also critical. <laughs> it's so it's completely critical because yeah, even even though we have the house, you know, he he gets to stop anything that goes, you know, any further, right? I mean, it's it's, uh, um, and he's been he's been so effective at just pushing forward his agenda and nothing else. I just find it fascinating that 
if he really cares, and look, we can't crawl inside of his head, and if we did, we'd probably come out covered in slime. But um, if he, if he, if he really cares about this whole Moscow Mitch thing, right? If he cares about being identified as a Russian asset, then why did he not do anything to stop Donald Trump and to even stand up to Donald Trump with all of the Russia-related stuff and Mueller and so on and so forth? So there's like a dichotomy there where you can't necessarily tell what's going on and why he's making those decisions and why these things are affecting him that way. Well, I would I would say that actually when you are looking at Mitch McConnell in some of the legislation that he's allowed to pass the Senate, there are the um, the sanctions package that that he did allow to pass the Senate that you know put um, you know that fresh batch of sanctions on Russia um, even after the ones that were the Obama era sanctions just at the end of Obama's term. So he did actually take that action. And when you were looking at that, it was something that Donald Trump didn't want to sign, but it was like so overwhelmingly, um, bipartisan in Congress. And they had so many votes that it would have been, they had such support for the sanctions package that they would have been able to override a veto. So Trump eventually did sign it. But so that is an interesting data point for Mitch McConnell in terms of Russia. And I think, you know, he does view Russia as an adversary, not an ally or a best friend, as Donald Trump seems to view them. Um, so I think it, he is taking it to heart. But when we're talking about the election security bills, so one of the things that they say about why Mitch McConnell is opposed to these election security bills is sort of this idea of keeping elections under state control and not having, you know, federal controls over them. And sort of this idea of there being, in Mitch McConnell's mind, like a slippery slope from you know, from the security, the election security bills to things like fundraising or campaign finance. So that's kind of the fear, um, just kind of keeping that, you know, federal state divide is sort of the argument that he is presenting behind, you know, not picking up these election security bills. So when you, uh, so, so l- last week you were actually in the halls of Congress, you were sitting a few feet from uh, Mueller as he was giving his um, testimony. And uh, that was the time when Mueller actually said, you know, oh, we're being hacked right right as we speak and right as we sit here. First of all, mm-hmm. um, before we get to the to the Mueller hearing, and I want to hear like if, about any of the behind the scenes stuff that you, you witnessed while you were there, but is is the juxtaposition of that going to have any impact on you know the government doing anything to stop the election hacking i mean trump obviously wants the russians to hack the election because they want him because he causes chaos and it's good for them and um you know that's just all fine and dandy for for donald trump and uh but a lot of people in government, folks that I know that work um, for different parts of the government, don't want that to happen. And so are they going to kind of go around the administration, at like the NSA and, and FBI and places like that? Are they going to – are there going to be state legislations that are put forward? Like what – how is how are people going to get around this to ensure that there is something done to try to subvert the – Russian interference in the election, uh, even though Donald Trump wants it to happen. 
Yeah, so so definitely there are efforts underway, obviously, at the state level. Um, different states are sort of, you know, trying to address the holes possibly that are in their election systems. And you do have the FBI kind of monitoring all this and the FBI working um, with other, you know, other agencies within the intelligence community to try to, like, keep this under control. And Mitch McConnell and, and other Republicans who are opposed to these election security bills have come out and said, you know, we keep getting these reassurances from the FBI and others that like this problem is being addressed and that they're building up the infrastructure to push back on it. But one of the, so some of the bills though, what the focus is of them is to give like a bill, I think one democratic bill or one um, bipartisan bill that's being presented is like giving $1 billion to states to kind of beef up their election security. So it, 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 they are, there are other efforts underway to kind of strengthen our infrastructure against, you know, Russian interference. But I think, you know, people who are in favor of these election security bills are, their argument is, okay, we were hacked, you know, we were meddled with in 2016, we should be doing everything possible in our power to do this. And a lot of people see what Mitch McConnell is doing is blocking, you know, further efforts to just, you know, make sure and kind of continue to strengthen our systems against against Russian or other interference from other um, other countries. Well, the thing I've always found so fascinating, I've, I've written about um, elections and voting and uh, and paper ballots for, for years now and um, why it is not a good idea, you know, in many respects, pretty much anything is probably a good idea to go from paper to pixels, you know, health records, as long as it's secure. Um, and even if it's not, it's still better for patients when you actually do make that transition because doctors across the country can see things instantly. Or you're, if you do get sick, there's quicker ways to solve major problems. And um, and the downs, the upside is much much bigger than the downside. But when it comes to elections, I've always, from all the research I've done and the reporting I've done, I've always found that uh, that unless unless you do some drastic major thing that uh, that is is proven to be secure, which is essentially putting kind of elections on like a blockchain like technology, which is almost mm-hmm. impossible to do. Uh, it would take decades probably uh, in the United States. That th- there is no world in which using electric electronic uh, voting machines or voting tech uh, technologies would make sense because it leaves us open for uh, for hackers and. The thing I find so fascinating is I I did a story last year on this um, uh, a couple of years ago actually sorry and uh, there was a theory I remember at the time that like one of the there was one county in like Michigan or something that was hacked and that they believe was like a test by the Russians and now the the it's coming out that actually they hacked every single state and they got into some mm-hmm. and they had an effect on others and um, I think it's you know it's it's terrifying that we have no the what what I think is so frustrating in America is that um that when you kind of look at like gerrymandering and the ability to kind of stop interference with other countries like Russia and Iran and places like that and probably North Korea um the and when you look at like the way that a lot of republican run uh, governors close polls in African American districts that are definitely going to vote for Democrats uh, when they close them early and things like that. It's just it it boggles my mind that 
that you, sure play unfair when you're when you're doing you know when we're when you're putting out ads and you've got your super packs and this that and the other but in the actual mm-hmm. voting process that we're okay with that uh, is just mind boggling. I mean, are, are there any Republicans that are like, hey, we should really kind of try to stop this? I mean, so here's the thing is you're absolutely right. And also you did um, kind of reference a new report that came out, which did say that, you know, Russians were able to infiltrate um, voting systems in all 50 states, which is alarming and is something that some of the Republicans who have spoken out and pushed back against Mitch McConnell and his stance have brought up. And as you mentioned, you know, Mueller in his testimony said they're doing it right now as we sit here in terms of, you know, seeking to meddle in our electoral processes still to this day. Um, And when you're looking at those other things that you mentioned, you know, absolutely, I do think that there are, um, that there are some Republicans who are speaking out, but there are some cases where it, it does, in terms of gerrymandering, cut both ways. There have been a few cases where, you know, the way that lines were drawn were more beneficial to Democrats. And in those cases, you see, you know, Republicans speak out, and then there are so many, as we've seen in these state legislatures, where they're you know drawn to favor Republicans, and a lot of Democrats speak out. I think one of the hard things when you're looking at this is just sort of, you know, I think there is kind of a sickness in American politics in terms of, as long as it's benefiting their party or you know them as individuals, politicians don't speak out against it. Um, but the second it kind of turns against them, then you kind of, you see them vocalize their concerns and say things like that. And I think it speaks to like a deeper problem in terms of American politics and sort of, you know, this idea of cheating or, you know, kind of tipping the scales in your direction, being okay as long as it's in your direction. Um, and I think that's just like a very pervasive problem and it's unclear as to whether that'll ever really go away. And I think that might be, you know, some of the most troubling, um, you know, such a troubling aspect of what we're seeing today, especially as there are all these cases and these debates around gerrymandering and cases going to the Supreme Court and and things of that nature. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with The New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to The Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Hive. All right, let's uh, let's switch gears a minute here. Um, just want to do one last shout out. Moscow Mitch, hashtag Moscow Mitch. Um, McTrader, that's a, Ma- there's a Ma- longer one. Moscow Mitch McTrader. 
It's a little extra, extra oomph there. We should start a new one. <laughs> Hashtag Moscow Mitch McTrader. How many chins do I have? Dot com. Um, yeah. Really, really start a conversation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So you were at the Mueller hearing. Um, mm-hmm. We don't need to really get into too much of the, the hearing because we've all read about it and heard about it at this point. But but was there anything – what was it like being in the room with him? Was he kind of like uh, – was there anything that you noticed? Did he seem confident? Did he seem pissed off? Did he seem like he knew exactly what he was going to do before he spoke? Um, were there any, any little – little asides that didn't make it into your reporting that that might be interesting for listeners? Yeah, I mean, I I guess one thing I'll say is being in the room, um, and I was in the room for the entirety of both the judiciary hearing and the intelligence hearing, um, I had a very different perspective than what you kind of saw from the reaction, whether it was from cable news pundits or, you know, other folks in the media who may not have been in the room or even were in the room. But my perspective was not that, you know, Mueller was... um, kind of fumbling or, you know, sort of whiffed on his testimony or anything like that. I think it was really important to realize that, you know, ahead of the hearing, Democrats and everybody involved knew exactly what he was going to do. He wasn't going to stray from the report. And he told them, I'm not going to read from the report, but feel free to read from the report yourselves if you want to. And he'll kind of confirm it. So a lot of the dynamics of the hearing were known going into it. And I just think there was a difference in expectations between people who were kind of aware of the format and what it would look like and viewers. Like, I think people thought that, you know, Robert Mueller was going to sort of, you know, bust out of his shell and kind of have these explosive moments. But I think if you had kind of been paying attention to what was going on leading into the hearing, um, you kind of knew that it was really more um, exactly what was expected given the dynamics ahead of it. Um, And being in the room, I actually found it incredibly compelling and, you know, sort of watching it and watching the lines of questioning that the Democrats were presenting to him versus the lines of questioning that Republicans were presenting to him. I thought it was a very stark difference. Democrats were kind of shaping a narrative and sewing it together through these various lines of questioning, whereas Republicans repeatedly kept bringing up topics, um, you know, whether to make like viral clips or, you know, appeal to the Fox News audience in ways about topics that Mueller out of the gate said he wasn't going to discuss. So, you know, his reluctance to answer those questions was something that he laid out at the beginning of the hearing, but Republicans kept trying to get him to talk about Christopher Steele, kept trying to get him to talk about Hillary Clinton, kept trying to get him to talk about Fusion GPS. All these things that he said were off limits because of ongoing DOJ investigations that are, you know, happening as we speak. So it was kind of interesting. And then, you know, people talked about Mueller seeming old or um, kind of, you know, stumbling in terms of not giving these long-winded answers or having to ask again. But I'll say this, like I'm in my 20s and I was in that room and it was difficult to hear what the lawmakers were asking him. Um, And I'm not a 75-year-old. You know what I mean? So it was just like, it was one of those things where like being in the room, I think you kind of got a sense of those dynamics and the fact that like it wasn't that easy for him to necessarily hear what was being asked or they would talk really quickly. And I think people kind of latched onto it as a sign of, you know, his lack of fitness being there. But my perspective, um, you know, being just a couple yards away was was very different. I, I sort of understood all the times where he asked for a clarification or asked for, you know things to be read again to him. Um, So I I think it was a little different just being in the room versus watching it on television or kind of hearing other people talk about it. 
He has a presence, too. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I mean... <laughs> he walked by and it was like, you can tell he's... I don't know. There's like an air about him where you're like, oh, yeah, I get I get why you got a bronze star in Vietnam. Hmm. Like, there's a sense to... I think there's a sense to people who are actual, I mean, hero. You do, know, you get, he do you get a sense that he <laughs> is... Um, uh, that he wants to say something that he can't uh, and or that he said that he has kind of said it and wants to move on or do you get the sense that like again you can't really we can't crawl inside these people's heads but you can kind of decipher a little bit about what they think and what they don't based on what they say and the way they carry themselves and and so on and and the thing I often wonder is you know this is a guy that I actually truly do believe more than more than probably anyone who has been in the news cycle around Trump uh, on either side, I think he is probably like one of the most authentic American kind of heroes. You know, he's like this guy who has done it all. And whether he's in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, I don't think that really matters to him. I think he's like mm-hmm. someone who genuinely cares about uh, democracy and the right thing and so on. And, um, and I, you know, when he answered that question of like, I don't, I, you know, I don't pay attention to what your Democrat, like what your political leanings are. I pay attention to your to your record as a prosecutor when I hire you. Mm-hmm. Do you get the sense that he's like okay with the way it's all playing out, or or that part of him kind of wants to like go home and scream into a pillow and like you know text his best friend and be like, why aren't they opening impeachment hearings? Yeah, so totally. Um, so it, it was really interesting to kind of even see. Um, kind of contrast his performance in the judiciary hearing versus the intelligence hearing. So the judiciary hearing came first, and I think that was a little bit unfortunate because I think it kind of set the narrative and set the tone. Um, But in that hearing, he was much more uh, hesitant or kind of withholding just in terms of his words and his his opinions and what he was saying. And there was an obvious reason, right? Um, He was talking about a lot of the questions were about Donald Trump and obstruction of justice. And keep in mind that he was, you know, sitting there adhering to DOJ guidelines. One says, you know, you can't indict a sitting president. And the other says, you can't disparage individuals who might be uh, a part of an investigation, but ultimately aren't charged. So when you're watching it in the hearing, I think so much of um, kind of the way that he was interacting with lawmakers or kind of his answers might be halting or just yes or no um, was because he's, he was sort of corralled in terms of what he could say by these guidelines. And he is a guy who just sticks to the rules, right? So he was very careful in terms of what he was saying about the president and what he was saying um, about the investigation, kind of given those guardrails that were naturally set up just being um, being somebody who was in that capacity representing the special counsel's office, but also DOJ. Um But fast forward to the intelligence hearing where we're talking about Russian interference and Russian meddling. He was much more effusive and he was saying things point blank. You obviously had that sentence where he said, you know, as we touched upon earlier, where he said, no, they're doing it right now. Like Russians are attacking us currently, to paraphrase. Um, And in that hearing, you also saw him say other things, too, that were kind of shots at Donald Trump. So, for instance, you know, one lawmaker put up a series of uh, a series of quotes that Donald Trump had said about WikiLeaks. Obviously, WikiLeaks is the company that, you know, disseminated these stolen emails that were stolen by Russian hackers and all that. And he, point blank, like, just said, it is something along the lines of, like, 
beyond concerning or beyond troubling that Donald Trump would praise these efforts and kind of go out of his way to say like WikiLeaks is great, basically. So you did see a difference in terms of how he was behaving in the first hearing, talking about obstruction of justice, and in the second, talking about Russian interference in the election. I think he was just sort of given given his position so much more willing uh, to discuss the Russian activities and sort of, you know, those interactions with the Trump campaign than he was obstruction of justice, given some of those DOJ guidelines that I touched upon earlier. And you know what, like, he was cognitively totally there. Um, and I think he saw his position in that hearing, not to say, okay, Democrats, you need to open impeachment hearings against the president. But I think his main goal sitting there was to say, to issue a warning to the American people that this is continuing to happen and that Russians are continuing to try to interfere in our elections. I think that was, you know, his overarching message that he was willing to say and share. Um, But I do find it very hard to believe that Robert Mueller, you know, would be chill (laughs) with everything that he outlined (laughs) in his report about Donald Trump in terms of obstruction. Because again, he straight up says, like, this is not an exoneration of the president. Yeah. So... Well, it's pretty as clear as you're going to get from him, I think. Well, hopefully um, something actually comes of this and Nancy Pelosi, you know, brings an impeachment hearing uh, because it's kind of it's at some point it's got to happen, I would imagine. I, I think that uh, uh, it's been frustrating waiting for her to kind of do something about it. But, you know, she has a strategy. I guess she thinks it's going to work. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) (laughs) We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. Okay, let's move on to the <laughs> debates. Dun, dun, dun. Ah, the Should debates. we do a little a little musical number now, like a uh, like Fox News does, like dun 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 twenty twenty elections. <laughs> Is that pretty good? Uh, yeah, yeah, that was good. That was decent. Yeah, I kind of liked it. I was ready to hate it, but I liked it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, so we have we have twenty four Democrats still running. We have two Republicans, mm-hmm. uh, which I actually want to get to a little bit. Um, we have uh, we've had two Democrats drop out. We have now five unlikelies, uh, one Republican and four Democrats, and then we have uh, a dozen people who are not running. Thank God, including people like Clinton and Bloomberg. Even though I like Bloomberg a lot, mm-hmm. so. This week's debates, I know the, I'm a little torn about having this conversation because it is uh, a year and a half before the elections, uh, maybe even a little longer, and we're already talking about it. However, mm-hmm. I do think that it, the, it, 
as I've kind of watched the the debates and the clips and so on and read the the, the news reports around everything and the analysis, I do think that um, it's really kind of helping weed out, you know, it's tr- it, the 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 good guys and the bad guys and the, and 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 you name it. And I of course have my front runners, and we'll get to that. But I want to get yeah. your take <laughs> from uh, what you what you thought of um, of the two debates this week and uh, and how everyone did. So so we'll go down the line. We can just kind of talk about some different people. Uh, Biden, my least favorite candidate. Um, what, what what do you think? Do you think he do you think he did a good job? Do you think he held his own this time? Do you think he's he's you know he's presidential material at this point in his fifty year career or what? Well, I think in terms of Biden, I think this week's debate, he did better than the first debate, but I don't necessarily think that rises to the level of holding his own. I think really what you have seen is his weaknesses on display. You know, last night, um, if people were watching, I think there were a number of occasions where he was kind of tripping on his words or kind of stumbling um, or his answers. Uh, he definitely seemed more prepared than he was the last time for attacks. Like, I think he was poised and ready um, for everything that was sort of thrown at him in a way that I don't think he was in the first debate. Um, I don't think he was ready uh, in the first debate for, like, Harris's attacks, for instance. And last night, he definitely seemed more prepared for them. But I don't think it really sent a... I don't think he managed to sort of send the message of, yeah, here I am. I am the one person on this stage that can take on Donald Trump. I think he fell far short of that last night. Yeah, I think that... And it's also the thing I, The thing that bothers me, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, is is he, he's been doing this longer than I've been alive and he... And we're in the state, and I blame it partially on people like him because of the of, and also he's flip flopped his entire career and this that and the other. Put that aside, but like, I don't want someone who is an old white man who has been doing this their entire life to then come back and do it again. I you, you didn't it didn't work out the first time it didn't work. And the thing that really pissed me off was the little condescension of him calling uh, Harris kid. It's just like mm-hmm. it it it. it he thinks it's like a oh I'm gonna I'm gonna show that you're younger than me and I'm I'm better than you and I've you know I have more experience and at the end of the day it make it has the complete opposite effect with me where I'm like oh that you just reminded me that you're just an old guy who's been doing this for a long long time and I don't want you to keep doing it I'm sure he's a lovely guy really I would love to sit down mm-hmm. and have a beer with him I'm sure it'd be great I do not want him to be the next president. Yeah, yeah. And it, for those who maybe didn't catch it, he when he walked out on the stage, um, he shook uh, Harris's hand and said, like, take it easy on me, kid, was like the context of when he was calling her that. And it was a little weird. I thought it was probably not the best thing to say. Yeah, yeah. well, he, <laughs> Certainly. he definitely he definitely thought it through beforehand because it was the first thing that came out of his yeah. mouth. So. And you know the cameras are on you. Oh, completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Let's move on to Harris. So Harris had the experience of being a front runner for the first time up on stage there, and mm-hmm. uh, the pressures of of that, which uh, were people coming after her. Do you think that she, you know, is she still getting her sea legs up there as as one of the leading candidates? And you know, do you think that she's going to kind of continue to uh, to forge ahead, or is she gonna? Is there going to be a few setbacks here and there, like there were this week? Or w- w- what do you think is going to happen with her? Yeah. So, so I think um, 
you know, different than Biden in that I think Harris's first debate was much stronger than her second debate. And I do think some of that can likely be credited to the fact that, you know, going into the first debate, she had to have that moment and she had to make her mark. And then she really jumped tears, I think, afterward. And like you said, became a front runner. And she certainly um, took a a much higher number of attacks last night than she did in the first round of debates. But I also think, you know, she was a little, a little bit rockier than she was in the first one. And I think some of that was, you know, it, it is harder to then be a front runner with a target on your back. And I think in this debate, she certainly was in that position. Um, that said, like, I think her performance was good enough in that I don't think she'll fall from where she was um, going into the debate at all. I think like in general last night, my takeaway from the debate was everybody was reading notes, everybody was so scripted and so staged and everything was so rehearsed that nothing actually on that entire stage other than a few moments from, you know, Castro possibly, Yang, um, I thought Booker did, you know, better than some of the other people in terms of projecting, um, more of a genuine authenticity type of thing on stage. But I think a lot of what you saw last night was a lot of people in their own heads who had paid too close attention to the night before. Because I don't know if you noticed this, but they were like recycling lines that the Democrats who were on the stage the night before had landed and were successful and were making buzz. You sort of saw the batch of candidates last night, like try to adopt the, those same lines and incorporate it. And it was just a little awkward and uncomfortable. And you just didn't get a sense of, I don't know, it was just like all in general, it just felt so much more scripted than, than Tuesday night, in my opinion. Uh, well, except no one was as amazing as Marianne Williamson on Tuesday night, who, uh, who was actually pretty good. I, uh, you know, I, I think that she, I, look, she's not going to be the nominee, but she's she's quite fun and entertaining, and she is um, she's got some smart things to say. Uh, I, and she got the memes this week. What what do you think her role is in this whole debate in the in the twenty twenty election cycle? Is she here as kind of not? I don't want to say comedic relief because she's it's not that's not a, a nice way of saying it, but she's not. It's she. It's clear she's not going to be the nominee, but she is. She mm-hmm. is like kind of pushing and jostling and like saying some things that we all agree with and some things that we don't. And what's her what's her role in this whole thing? How long does she stick around for? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, after the first debate, she had like the most um, search returns for her name. Um, and there were certainly some moments where she spoke eloquently about certain things. I think she did, you know, talking about reparations and race um, and sort of, you know, environmental racism. Those were interesting points. But I guess like, I, I do think I have a lot of hesitancy just talking about her and sort of trying to prop her up uh, on a platform of any sort, just given that she does have some, you know, troubling views on certain things oh, like yeah. vaccines. And I think, you know, it, it, she is kind of, you know, she is this sort of uh, kind of a brevity candidate who's out there who, you know, when you're on stage and she kind of cuts through and there's like memes and jokes about it, but a little bit like I do worry about, you know, giving somebody who has made, um, you know, certain comments about vaccines or other medications or things like that, a platform is just sort of a dangerous thing to do in terms of sort of, you know, amplifying some of those more troubling views that she has. Um, but I will say, like, you know, when she was on stage, uh, there were moments where, 
she kind of did surprise you. Um, but yeah, I guess I'm very, just sort of uncomfortable no, I, <laughs> with I, Marianne Williamson and all that. Um, but I like get your point. I, yeah, I just, it, it is curious like what the role is, but I think candidate just in the mix. I think it's, but I think you're right. I mean, I think one of the things that's, that's, that's been troubling ever since, you know, Trump stepped off that, um, escalator, uh, what, five years ago now, um, uh, four years ago now, which is nauseating to think about. It became it. It was a it was a moment where it changed from just politics to entertainment, and I think part of it part of the problem is is we are entertained by her, but there are, as you're just pointing out, is there are repercussions to that entertainment. Which is if she's right. the, if she's the most searched for person uh, after uh, the first debate, and then people find her comments on vaccines, and then they kind of buy into that, then you know, the repercussions of that ripple through society. And so uh, it is a bit nerve-wracking to think about uh, about the repercussions of her up there. So I don't know. We'll see. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. All right, let's talk about uh, a few more people and then we'll let you escape this madness. Uh, (laughs) Beto. So the thing I find so fascinating about Beto Beto, um, is, it's Beto, right? Am I saying it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, you could call him Francis. That's his real name. We'll call him. Let's call him Francis then. So the thing I find most fascinating <laughs> about Francis is that he people loved him when he was up against Cruz. Like he was all anyone could talk about was, oh my god, he's uh, his his speaking skills, his the speeches he gives. The, there was memes floating around with and little this now videos with twenty two, twenty five million dollar, twenty five million sorry views, and it was just like unbelievable. And now it like ever since he went on the cover of Vanity Fair, it's like he's Oops. become like it, a, it's a, a joke. It's almost like the, 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 if you were to um, if you read like some philosophy. And you imagine like a drunk person saying it at a bar. You, it's like the line between those things is very similar. It's like a, it's a, you know, it could go either way, like super smart or super dumb. And it feels like he's kind of gone in the other way. Is his message changed, or were we just kind of looking the other way because he was up against Ted Cruz? I think, well, I think, you know, definitely in the center race, he was helped by the fact that he was running against, you know perhaps the least like politician in America, one of them. Top five. I think Ted Cruz is definitely like a top five least liked politician. Oh, I would, yeah. Um, I would say sure. McConnell, Cruz, um, what's his name from Alabama? Uh, um, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Yeah. Donald Trump. Steve King, the racist. Oh, yeah. Steve King, the racist. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, back, you got to throw him in there. Back to Francis. Well, so I I think the thing about him is, you know, during his Senate campaign and even during like the early stages of his presidential campaign or sort of when he was in that phase of, is he going to run? Is he not going to run? He really kind of thrived in those environments where it was like free, like flowing conversation and just like going on these long riffs, whether it's about, you know, football players kneeling during the national anthem or, you know, the border or these things. And he really does have a lot of success in terms of, you know, those types of situations where he can kind of go on these long sort of like monologues and um, interacting with people. And I think that's really where his strength is. And one of the problems is, is like after he announced and, you know, then there was, as you mentioned, you know, the Vanity Fair cover, I think he got sort of, um, 
he lacked like footing, I think was a huge part of it. Like he didn't necessarily know how he was going to like, you know, kind of enter the race as like a white man. And, you know, I think he struggled initially with his messaging and lost some of that momentum. And then I think in the first debate, what you saw is you saw him trying to sort of tap into that strength that he has in terms of, you know, telling these personal stories or talking about these like anecdotes about people who he met at the border or whatever it may be. But the problem is, is that doesn't work during a debate. Like the format is set up for the exact opposite of that and he totally floundered. And then he also was getting attacked by, you know, other folks on stage because he was kind of um, sort of seen as a front runner, at least in terms of name recognition and buzz around him. I think in the debate, you know, this week, you saw he practiced. He changed his format. I think his performance was actually a lot better this week than in the first debate because he sort of fit within the format, and I think he did a much better job um, sort of landing his points and landing um, his lines or whatever it may be. But I don't think it's enough. Like, I yeah. think he... Any, any chance he had, he lost. And, you know, when he kind of was floundering, like Mayor Pete stepped right in and like filled that vacuum. And I think that's kind of what happened. Like, you know, the young guy, uh, Mayor Pete kind of passed him. And I think it'd be hard to come back. Though we will see, Beto is one of, um, one of seven Democrats only seven who have qualified for the next debate. So he'll be up on stage. And I think, you know, again, I think his performance this week was much better than the first debate, but I just don't think he can, I don't think there's, he can breathe enough life into his presidential campaign at this point. Yeah. I feel like if he were to come into the race today, people would be like, Oh my God, this is the guy. Uh, um, yeah. but, but he, he didn't. So, all right. Like, I think his performance was actually better than a lot of people who were front runners on stage last night. But the problem was, is like his group in the first debate with like Buttigieg, Warren, Sanders, it was just a better debate, I thought. Oh, I agree completely, but. completely. Speaking of, um, we're going to get to a few more, uh, uh, before we wrap up. So, so Buttigieg, I don't, I don't feel, I, look, I love the guy. I think he's amazing. I think it, it makes me, uh, it makes me really sad that the, the only thing going against him is the fact that he's gay. It's like, that's the thing that we, you know, I mean, the fact that that, that is even part of the discussion still is so frustrating. Um, and I think if he wasn't, I think he would, you know, he would probably be the front runner, but, but that being said, um, uh, he wasn't that he wasn't necessarily, he didn't seem like he was on his game this week. He seemed like a little bit like he took a couple of Valium or something. W was it just like he was, you know, de dealing with some of the, the issues of, of being in the game for as long as he's been in now, which is now a few months and things are starting to, the buzz is starting to wear off. Or do you think that he's still trying to figure out his message or what do you think is going on there? See, I actually kind of had a different takeaway. I sort of viewed um, how he handled it as uh, kind of rising above the fray and like sticking to his message. And it just seemed very clear that he wasn't um, he wasn't willing to sort of engage in like the food fight type of a thing. Hmm. And I think he did have certain moments that, you know, it, it might not have been um, 
I, I don't think he necessarily had moments against like other Democrats on stage that were like, oh yeah, Mayor Pete like won that exchange against Warren or Sanders or somebody like that. But I think he actually was effective in sort of positioning himself as like a counter to Donald Trump. I think, you know, there was the most notable moment in the debate was when he looked directly into the camera and essentially said to other Republicans and members of Congress who continue to support this president that they're just enabling him and, you know, history won't look kindly on them. And I thought that was like an interesting moment where it kind of focused it in on Donald Trump and, you know, the man in the Oval Office um, while really trying to avoid getting into any sort of tussle with anybody else on stage. So I think it was part of a strategy. I think it was part of a strategy to position himself as, you know, an adversary to Trump and nobody else in the room or in the on the stage is kind of my take. Yeah, no, it's a good point. I get your point, I, though. I, 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 no, yeah. I think you're completely right. I think, you know, one of the things that um, when you looked at all the media coverage this week about both of the, especially the second debate, but both of the debates is that it was so focused on um, on each other and on on the Obama administration and and Biden and this that and the other that it that they they forgot to go after the the bad guy in the room which is of course Donald Trump and um, you know the the thing that I do think is you know I think the media coverage of this can be kind of and look we're we're playing into it right now having a conversation about it but it can be a little bit ridiculous um, sometimes and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that being said, I do think it has an impact. You know, uh, the media coverage of Biden was that he was pathetic uh, and and beaten up uh, during his last debate, and he came out in a different a different way. You know, Kamala Harris will respond in the next one in a different way because she get she's getting the brunt of it today, and and so mm-hmm. on. And so you can actually see it having you can see it having an impact in in a direct way. Um, and I think what will be interesting is if we if the response about how they all went after each other and, and no one really wants to see that they want to see them go after Trump, uh, if that if that gets into their inbox, um, which it will, um, then maybe the next debate will actually be focused on all the things Donald Trump has done wrong in society, which was the first debate mm-hmm. uh, really really hit on. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it did. Just to make one yeah. final point on that, I think some of it, you know, sort of that like inner party. F- like fighting that we saw, I think a lot of it actually had to do with the the way that the questions were posed in these last two debates by CNN that wasn't the same sort of format that you saw in the first debate. Oh, like a lot of it was like, oh, uh, John Delaney, like you said, Medicare for all sucks. Like, can you expand on that? And then like immediately pivot to like Warren and Sanders to have to defend their policies position. I think it was a lot had to do with sort of the framing of the questions. And a lot of it, it it just felt, especially um, during last night's debate, it just felt like CNN was sort of like goading them into fighting. Like be like, hey, so-and-so said something bad about you. CNN being dramatic? Whoa, no way. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But that was my take. I thought it was like, I thought a lot of it had to do with the questions versus like, I thought the first debate didn't have quite as much of that like, uh, kind of intentional prodding of candidates against the other built into the format. Um, but that was, you know, that was my perspective. Well, I got to say the one thing that really kind of annoyed me about the whole, about, about the whole thing was, I mean, it's, and this goes back to the media coverage of it. Like if you look at the headlines everywhere, it's like who won, who won the debate? It's like this, I don't think it's a winning part at this point. I think it's, it's a like teasing out, how well you are on stage and against other people and so on and so forth. It's not mm-hmm. about like a winner. And then <clears throat> there was the debate. I mean, there was the um, 
the news alert last night, I think it was from the New York Times that came out this week, where they, it was said after the debate where, uh, you know, Biden held his own and is still the front runner. And it's like, he's not the, like, what, what says he's the front runner? So a few polls that, like, that are probably going to be wrong. I think that it just kind of, it puts the whole thing in, in the wrong, wrong perspective, in my opinion. I think we should be looking at performances rather than, than winners. Um, all right, so I have. Yeah, I, totally agree. I have one uh, one last question for you, which is mm-hmm. um, uh, Warren. Um, how I mean, I, I thought she was brilliant. Honestly, I, I think that you know, I I will be honest in the in when we first spoke about her six seven months ago um, when we were first talking about uh, her as a candidate. I I thought I was thought she was a little weak, honestly, um, especially when she did that DNA test, which I wish she hadn't have done. Um, and, and she has like just gotten better and better and better and, uh, mm-hmm. is, is a, is a killer out there. Um, and, and I do think that she could take on Trump. Like what's your, what's your thought on her? I, um, I agree. I think when I'm, when I'm looking at the, you know, the, what we saw on stage across the two debates, I think in terms of policy articulation, uh, there's no one better up there than her. Um, I do think what she presents is somebody who knows her policies, she knows her plans, and she can articulate them in sound bites, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. I think, you know, looking at, like watching her on stage, I think she sort of kind of outpaced everybody in that regard. I think, you know, Bernie Sanders is Bernie Sanders and, you know, his greatest strength is his authenticity and, like, anything he says you 100% believe, like, that he believes what he is saying, which is really unique. And I think, but I, I thought watching the debate, it was interesting to sort of see the way in which Warren was able to kind of walk through her policy proposals and her plans in what I thought um, personally was a bit more of an effective way than even like a Bernie Sanders. Um, And I do think, you know, it was nice to see the two of them, you know, kind of their friendship on display and the fact that they really respect each other. And I thought it was great to kind of see that detente on stage between the two of them, um, sort of agreeing like, hey, you know, our ideas are similar, like we are kind of on the same side here and kind of going after other folks like a Tim Ryan or a John Delaney or somebody who really has um, much starker ideological differences than the two of them. I thought she did great. No, I, I. The other person who I think like was able to articulate their policies as well as her, or not maybe as well as her, but like similarly, is Andrew Yang. Just this total wild card. Like somebody got in terms of most improved between the first debate and the second debate. I would say Andrew Yang. Um, I don't think his policies. You know, he's not going to be the nominee. I don't think his policies really have like widespread appeal or mainstream focus at all necessarily, but like... But impact. I think aside from her, yeah, and I think aside from her, like he was able to articulate his policies um, in a very good way. The thing I will give him, I'll give uh, Andrew Yang major props for is, I I mean, I remember him reaching out to me on Twitter, I think like in a DM, we uh, uh, like a year plus ago, um, when he was just getting started and I was like, this guy's got, got like what 2000 followers. He's never going to get anywhere. And like, he's up there. He's like really, yeah. he's, and he's, and, and, and I think him and Warren, I think really, you know, like they all are hustling and everything, but, but those two have really been like, okay, like I am, I'm going to climb up this mountain of sloggy mud to the top with every ounce of strength that I have. 
Uh, and you got to kind of, you know, you got to give people props for that. Um, I, yeah, uh, totally. I, so I'm going to, uh, one last question. Do you, who do you think, if you had to just guess today, and of course we are a year and a half ahead, uh, who do you think it will be, who will be the, the presidential, vice presidential nominee up there oh. against Trump? I honestly, at this point, can't even make that prediction. Um, I think it's really tough. And I think the problem right now is just the size of the field. I think it really will come down to when we actually see the front runners um, on stage together versus sort of this like split grouping situation. Because I don't think you can really sort of see how people match up until you know, they're actually, you know, the real, the people who have real shots or are polling above 2% are all kind of in a group together. And I think the next debate will actually be perhaps the most telling, right? Like it, it would be, it would have been such an interesting debate to have like Warren, Sanders, Biden, and Harris all on stage together last night. You know what I mean? Like, I just think it's really hard to say without seeing sort of those dynamics in front of you. Um, that said, I do think, you know, after this debate, we're going to kind of see those numbers change. And I'm very interested to see what happens, you know, for instance, to Biden's numbers relative to like Warren's numbers and um, Harris, if she has the same kind of boost she saw after the first debate. But I don't know. What what are your thoughts? I'm just it's too early for me. I think that it's still, uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm still a big Pete Buttigieg fan. I'm more and more a Harris Warren fan. My wife mm -hmm. literally bought worn bumper stickers uh to put on her car she is a diehard warren supporter um i and i you know, first didn't didn't see it and now i actually do um i think that if i were to guess if i had to guess today who it will be i believe it will be either warren or harris is the front runner um mm -hmm. and um and either Buttigieg, Warren, or Harris as the VP, depending on who it is. Um, mm -hmm. I think you take a big gamble with two women, but at the same time, it's like, go for it. Um, and, and I think, you know, from reporting I've done over the past few months and time I've spent with, like, staunch Trump supporters, the, the thing that I've learned and the reality I've, I've had is that you could put Donald Trump on the Democratic t ticket and uh, Donald Trump would still win as a Republican. It's, there is nothing... That they are going to that you're going to do that is going to change them from voting uh, um, for the leading Republican candidate um, and um, right. nothing, just literally nothing. Uh, um, mm -hmm. It just comes down to issues that abortion, religion, you know, you name it. Uh, even if it's not something that that Donald Trump believes in um, or cares about. Uh, but that's mm -hmm. what it comes down to. And I think that at the end of the day, um, you, what you're trying to do with the Democratic Party is to get those million moderates in the middle to swing in a direction or less 100,000 in the in the in the most important districts to swing in the right direction to to flip the electoral votes. And and so at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. Um, it's you, it, so I think it's almost like the the question of. Buttigieg's sexuality is is irrelevant because at some at those those voters would never vote for him anyway. It doesn't matter whether he was gay right. or straight mm -hmm. or or whatever. Um, he's a Democrat, uh, and um, and they're never going to vote for a Democrat. And so it's about those people in the middle. I think that is uh, that's the uh, that we have to kind of think about. And and the question with Warren, 
which I don't know the answer to, is is she too far left for them? Um, and uh, I don't know. So, you know, I think mm-hmm. it'll kind of play itself out. Uh, but it's fun, to, it's fun to talk about it and to watch and to see everyone call each other to the death there on stage on CNN. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's, I think it's nice to have options, you know? Yeah, no, I, it I is. Think that, it, it, it is. That's like the one overarching theme of conversations I've been having with people. Like, I think it's a mess right now. Obviously, it was like, you know, last night, I think, devolved into such a food fight on stage. But I do think a lot of people are excited about, you know, sort of the caliber and the quality field of candidates that are up there. And it is exciting to to watch a group of very smart people debate policy minutiae versus, you know, kind of what you saw from Republicans where Donald Trump was out there and just took it to such a juvenile level of conversation. Yeah, I remember. Talking about hand size with yeah. Rubio or whatever yeah. it may be, just ridiculous. And I, I think it is nice to kind of see, I don't know, adults who speak in full sentences on a stage. No, it's totally true. <laughs> I, I remember... Uh, talking about the future of the country. I remember the um, uh, the conversation with... Um, the, sorry, the, the news reports uh, in one of the last debates when it was like Rubio, Cruz, and Trump. And there was a, t- a New York Times headline that was like, it was a story like, should you let your child watch this debate? On uh, and it's because it was like it had devolved into like, yeah, hand sizes and all those other things, and it was just Horrible. It, yeah, it was uh, it was it was nice to, to see this. All right, so last 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 question. So r- <laughs> right now you have up against uh, you have potentially Weld running against Trump. Will we see more Republicans potentially come out and run against him? Do you think, or are they too? Is it just impossible, and they're too afraid to get into that fist fight? I mean. I don't think uh, I don't think anybody running against Donald Trump uh, as a Republican is going to win the nomination by any means. Uh, the key is if they can siphon off vo- votes if they run as like an independent or something like that, and sort of where that comes from. Obviously, also though, like when you look historically at, at folks um, at Republican races, like. For instance, you look at H.W. Bush, and he had a Republican primary challenger, and then he lost the general election. So kind of when you look at historical trends, if there is a solid, not even, you know, not even a Republican who people think will win the primary, but just like enough of a Republican, often in history, when you, what you've seen is that it was kind of like a canary in a coal mine in terms of, you know, if you have a challenger in the primary Uh, it might not bode well for that candidate in the general. I do think when we're looking at other folks that might jump in, uh, Justin Amash is a huge person that I think people are watching. And obviously, you know, he, he's the only Republican. Well, he's no longer a Republican. Um, He's now, I think, technically an independent. He changed his registration, but he was the only former Republican, I guess, who had come out in favor of an impeachment inquiry against the president. You know, he gave that, he, He's been really articulate and sort of talking about why he views that that way. He had that town hall where he talked about his views. Um, and there is a chance, Tina, actually, our colleague, wrote a story about him, which people should read, about is he toying with the idea of a presidential run, probably as an independent at this point. And if you have somebody like that, like the question is, is like, okay, what part of the vote 
do they eat up? Like, do they hurt Trump enough that then he's going into a, a general election weaker? Or do they kind of capture some of those independent voters that aren't going to vote for like an Elizabeth Warren, um, but don't want to vote for a Donald Trump, so they go with this independent candidate? Um, I think that's a lot of questions. But I think in terms of other folks to watch for, he's probably top of my list. All right. Well, Abby, thank you so much for answering all my annoying questions. Always. It's always so fun. It's always so fun to have you on. And uh, we will uh, we'll have you back soon. Thank you again. And uh, don't forget to uh, buy my T-shirts. And I don't have any T-shirts. I should get some T-shirts. You, I was like, what T-shirt? We should get some tote bags. Inside the Hive? Inside the Hive with Abigail Tracy. Could it be like just inside the and then a beehive? Ah, I like where <laughs> no, you're going. No, that doesn't work. Should we, don't should do we that. end? I was, let, that was a bad idea. We should end Let's it. end. <laughs> let's end with the, the our Fox News announcement. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do to the 2020 election cycle. Boom. That's it. Yep. <laughs> yep. Thanks, Abby. We'll Perfect. talk to you soon. Thanks to my guests this week, Abby Tracy and Moscow Mitch. That sounded pretty good. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. And if you don't want to leave a nice one, don't leave one at all. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks, of course, to my sponsors this week, Quartz, Bombas, and Blinkist. Please support every single last one of them the same way you support this podcast. We will see you next week. Are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, Oh my god, I can hear gunshots, I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague Heidi Blake at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts.